What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right supremacists and right proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. This is The Shot, where photographers tell the stories of their photos. I'm Michael John Oliver. For almost 40 years, Mark Peterson has worked as a photographer, but never have his shots seemed more vital and timely. He has captured some of the most pointed and provocative photos of American political life, pulling back the curtain and revealing a world of theatrics and spectacle. But arguably, his most important work has focused on some of his country's ugliest moments. The surge of white nationalism under Donald Trump has left the award-winning photographer trying to capture a country he has trouble understanding. We're speaking a few days after the US Senate voted to acquit Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial for inciting an insurrection on the US Capitol. It's one of a litany of things happening in American democracy right now. What is your sense of where the United States is right now? I think uh, January 6th and what happened, the rioting and the looting at the U.S. Capitol shows that there's a lot of potential for violence in this country right now. And I think we're, I think we'll see more of it. I think there's a lot of people that feel very disenfranchised for whatever reason and uh, don't look at the election as being legitimate because they were told that for months and months and that uh, we could be in a period that the United States went through in the 90s when militias came up. There were a lot of domestic terrorism incidents, a lot of white supremacy, and, uh, you know, a lot of lone wolves doing things. And I think we're, we could be in that situation again. Did the riot on the Capitol surprise you at all? You know, that day, it did. I, I wasn't expecting that, I guess you could say. I think most photographers and journalists that have been to any of Trump's rallies or any of the stop the steal things or, you know, open, you know, up rallies at the capitals before that expected violence at some point. I mean, people would talk about not not me, but other journalists would talk about expecting somebody to just walk up with an AR-15 and open up into a crowd of Antifa or Trump supporters at some point. And, and we saw that happen in Wisconsin, you know, when one gentleman killed several people. We saw a, a Boogaloo uh, militia member kill a federal agent back in, I think it was October or September in California. And so I think people expected something to happen coming out of a rally where 
where people would get violent. And there, there were incidents during the 2016 campaign where there were fights after rallies by pro and anti-Trump, you know, people. I expected violence that day, but I expected it at night, which had happened at the rallies before this, where four or five or 600 uh, Proud Boys marched through D.C. and attacked anybody that they thought was Antifa or a communist or whatever in their minds were people who were other than them. And there was a lot of violence at a rally. The, the night after a rally, the night, yeah, after a rally in D.C. where they just rampaged through the streets and the police did nothing. So that's what I expected to happen on January 6th, the same kind of scenario. You know, I expected them to go to the Capitol, to march around the Capitol, you know, for there to be some minor clashes, but not, you know, for them to breach the Capitol like they did. You've worked as a photographer for close to 40 years. Is that correct? 40 years? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a hell of a stretch. How did that journey begin? Well, I grew up in Minneapolis and in my mid-20s, I decided I, I suddenly had to be an adult. I had kind of failed at everything else. So I lucked into starting to string for UPI when UPI was still in existence as a, a real competitor to AP. And so I was able to string for them. And then also I got a position with a great alternative paper in Minneapolis, City Pages. And at that time, it was a great music scene and City Pages was very much into music and and reporting on it. So it was like Prince and Husker Du and The Replacements and just these amazing, amazing time for music and that. But also... I had to learn how to take portraits and and do feature pictures. And so it was just a great learning experience in Minneapolis. And that, you know, to to do harder news, like there were big strikes at some of the meatpacking plants in southern Minnesota and to do that for UPI. But then to go and try and make a portrait of four people who were just staring at you and didn't want to be there because it was early in the morning, you know. So, you know, it was a great experience. In 1987, I I moved to New York, and I just imagined I'd just be able to work for a magazine, you know, once or twice a month and have enough money to live grandly in in New York. Uh, You know, that was, of course, a mistake. But luckily, uh, Reuters was starting to come into the U.S. So I helped open up the photo bureau in New York, and that was a great experience. You know, I was very lucky that they took a chance on me. And at the time in New York, it was when New York was really changing, you know, going from what people imagine, you know, Escape from New York was like, you know, that kind of movie to you know, being more gentrified. But there were these huge trials like Michael Milken, uh, the subway 
shooter Bernard Getz, Amelda Marcos. So there were, you know, just these great opportunities to see this theater play out on the steps of courthouses, you know, and and to get, you know, that experience. Because in Minneapolis, when I go to something, a big event, there'd be two or three photographers there, you know, and that was like a, a, a big event, you know, a, a, a real cluster, you know, and in New York, you'd go and there'd literally be, you know, 50 to 100 people that you'd be trying to move through or negotiate to get one clear shot. So it, it was a, it was a fun experience in trying to negotiate chaos and that and make an image that, you know, hopefully was a little revealed what that moment was. After a couple years, I lucked out and started working for magazines. Since 1990, I've just been freelance and work for magazines. I In 93, I was lucky enough to meet Marcel Saba, who had an agency called Saba, and now it's called Redux Pictures, and I've been with him ever since. I, I'm very lucky to be with them. You know, that's the only reason I can keep working. What spurred your move towards more political photography? I've always been interested in politics. You know, when when I started in Minneapolis, Walter Mondale was the Democratic candidate for president. And so it, it was just to see that, to see that mechanism. So I shot politics, you know, for magazines. When I came to New York, one of my first big assignments was for the New York Times magazine on on Bill Clinton. And, you know, it was before he was the front runner. So access was really, really great. And, you know, I had no idea about the whole mechanism of, you know, being on the plane with the candidate and, and, going through that whole process. So it was, a, you know, it just made me look at politics like, you know, it's, it's not just a speech, you know, there's all this stuff around it. So, uh, you know, I, I shot politics, uh, you know, pretty much every presidential cycle and like that. In 2013, I kind of got to the point where I wanted I mean, I mean, my work has always been editorial more than photojournalism, you could say, where, you know, it has a style or or a viewpoint. You know, you could say in my pictures, I'm making an editorial decision. I mean, everybody does when they take a picture. You know, Chantel Ackerman, a great director, says, once you make a frame, it's fiction, and, you know, I believe in the truth of, of photojournalism and that, but I also think it's important for photographers to have, a, have their own viewpoint, you know, what they're seeing to capture that and make sure the public is seeing it, not just illustrate what a reporter is writing. And that I think you know, it's, it, you can look at it as teamwork or you can look at it as people having different opinions of the situation. And that just allows the viewer, the reader 
to get a fuller picture. In 2013, I, I really changed my style in a way and approached things much more editorially uh, in a way where I really wanted to synthesize the people I was photographing down to their basic uh, need or desire for power to reflect that in the picture, to go to the core of their power. What's striking to me about your work is those the strong use of contrasts, you know, black and white and motion and stillness, sharpness and blur. What is your creative process, particularly since 2013? You know, I really love movies. And so I really enjoy, you know, like a movie like Citizen Kane. And that depth of field and, and the contrast and the shadowing, there's a, a sequence in it where Foster Kane runs for governor. And I just really love that. And so I went to one event in 2013, which was the Tea Party, which is a right wing group, you know, that supports the Republicans in this country. We're having a rally on the on the lawn of the Capitol against the Affordable Care Act, which most people call the Obamacare. But it was tr to try and stop, you know, public health care in this country. And what happened was every Republican congressperson came out of the uh, Senate or, or the House chamber and gave a two-minute soundbite, you know, on stage and then went back up. And I shot it and I looked at my pictures and they were very, they were good in the sense they recorded the, what the scene was, but they didn't record the theater of it. They didn't record how fake the whole thing was, that it was just a TV studio set up so these people could make sound bites, hoping to get on the national news or their local news like that. So the next time I went out, I went and photographed the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, who at that point was thought to be the front runner for the Republican nomination. He's a very large man, but also he's a very aggressive person when he talks to people. And he'll just start shouting at, like, like let's say somebody from the teachers union starts talking to, asking him a question at a town hall. He'll just go right in their face, I mean, like inches away, and just start yelling at them and telling them how wrong they are and that they, they don't know what he knows. And, and it's just a very aggressive way of demoralizing, disenfranchising, or telling people they're wrong. And so when I went, I just wanted to just photograph his mouth and him shouting at somebody. And, you know, I had to get very close to do that. After I did that, then I wanted it to have, you know, kind of that high contrast, deep shadow looks. I'm not very good at Photoshop, so I just bought some apps on my iPhone and put the picture into that and just started manipulating it that way to get the, the kind of look that I wanted. You know, it cost me five bucks to do that, you know, because I bought five apps. But 
it's it's where that you know kind of look came from and that and and why I did that I you know I I want to really peel away you know how they want to look and I want to project what their real power is what their real way that they do deal with the public like Ted Cruz I photographed from below and put a shadow up above them and you can either say it looks like an angel or it looks like a devil you know I did that because his father is is a preacher a, an evangelistic preacher and so I just wanted to show him in that kind of setting because that's how he talks and that's how he projects in his speeches is that you're at a tent revival and he's he's teaching you the truth and and you know you're going to become one of the faithful and get to heaven or get to whatever you know if if you believe in him that shot of chris christie i was i was going to ask you about that specifically because the tight shot of his mouth it's incredibly uncomfortable to look at and there's something about a tight shot on someone's mouth particularly a politician that is very revealing in its minimalism if you will yeah i mean uh, that was the first shot i did in the in my project political theater when i got that i was like okay this is where i have to go i was really lucky that instagram kind of was coming into being at that time if i was to take some of these pictures to the magazines i worked for at that time i think they'd be like oh those are fun mark but we could never run them i was able to post them on instagram as i started this which i think instagram is a very important thing for photographers it's like a proof sheet that we can all kind of share with with people and people can help us along or you know disagree where we're going and and I think that's a good thing it can be a community and really help with that and so by doing that people came to the work slowly and started to see stuff and then I became I was really lucky that MSNBC had a really great photo site at that time and they allowed me to just continue this work through the election it it just was it, it was a great luxury to have that venue and to be able to just continue the work that way and then luckily Steidel saw you know validity in the work and published a book in 2016 of it has instagram made you a better photographer yeah i i i think it could have yeah yeah i think you know i know it's made me see work that i didn't wasn't seeing and that's made me a a better person and a better a better knowledge of photography and that because i i mean it's just so great to be able to see work of people that you know I, I probably never meet you know the best thing about the pandemic is is to be able to watch these zoom lectures that you would never get to or or podcasts that you you wouldn't have been able to get to in the past and i think instagram is the same thing you can just 
explore so many different styles and so many different people's approach and and what they're thinking. And I think a lot of people do work that Instagram is their proof sheet. It's it. You know, when when somebody introduces a new project, you're just like, oh, yeah, I want to see the next one. Your photography has always been provocative and thought provoking. And there's probably no better example of that than your work covering white nationalism. In 2018, you received a grant of $35,000 for your project, The Past is Never Dead, which shone a light on the surge of white supremacy in America. How did that project come together? So after President Trump was elected in 2016, you know, I'd kind of gone through three straight years of working the campaign and doing that. I kind of, you know, took a month or or two to kind of think where I wanted to go. The second he got in the White House, he started doing the, the Muslim ban and and talking about and building the wall or stopping immigration, you know, all the stuff he did. And so I just wanted to look at the people who were listening to that message and what they were doing about it. In this country, there was a, like what the Capitol riot was in January 6th, There was this Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, which was, you could say, another riot where people came ready to fight and did battle in the streets for hours and, and several people were killed. Heather High was run over by a white nationalist and that. So I just kind of went from the White House and just followed the echo of his voice through America into the living rooms of the white nationalists. And I just wanted to show who these people were. And the big thing I wanted to try and do was not just portray people as being from the South or whatever. I, I traveled the whole country and showed people in the Northwest, in California, in Boston, in New York, uh, in New Jersey, you know, and the South to show how across the board people were listening to him and carrying on his message into their community. You were in Charlottesville, weren't you? I was, yes. Yes. Were you there on assignment or did you go of your own choice? A lot of things I do, I do on my own, and then maybe I look for somebody to run the work. It's hard to convince somebody, hey, there's going to be this really violent demonstration. I think you should cover it. You know, there's not, it's not really something that people want to look at. Although magazines have been very generous to me, I've been very lucky to work for the magazines I work for. But a lot of stuff I do, a lot of projects I've done, I always start on my own, and then maybe eventually I get backing for them. How did that day unfold for you? Yeah, it was it was a day a lot like the Capitol. I expected there to be violence, but not during the, the speeches and that kind of stuff. 
and they literally never even got to the speeches. It went right to a street battle and that I got there early and my goal when I went there was to really get certain people who were the leaders of the alt-right or white nationalists or leaders of certain groups who were going to appear there. And so I snuck my way into the area that was only supposed to be for the speakers and, and the white nationalists. And so I was kind of in that area waiting for people to speak. And, you know, Richard Spencer was there who, who was kind of the figurehead of the alt-right at that point. And so I'm just photographing him, you know, just talking about getting pepper sprayed while he was trying to get in there. And after a little bit, I, I was like, you know, you could hear outside that area that stuff was really just degenerating and that, that, you know, people were really fighting. Before that, you know, there was a line of militia people who were kind of trying to keep the two sides apart and that. But I saw David Duke, who is another figurehead in this movement, out there. And so I just went outside the fenced-in area and it it was really an open fight between, you know, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and the white nationalists. The police were nowhere in sight. The militia that had come to allow free speech, that that's what they say their intentions were, left because they didn't want to be part of this. And so people were just with shields and poles and pepper spray and uh, smoke bombs, just fighting back and forth. I photographed that for about an hour until finally the police, I think the governor called a state of emergency and the police told everybody that they had to leave and they kind of started pushing people away. And so there were just Groups got separated and people started, you know, fighting here and there in the streets. Finally kind of got to this one street about three blocks away from the square that it all started in, following one group. And suddenly a car just comes backing out of the street. And it had been like the the fenders were all you know, falling off. And that was James Field. And he had just a block away, rammed his car into a group of Antifa and killed Heather High and severely injured other people. You know, there's a famous shot that a, a photographer took where you just see the car hitting the people and people flying in the air. It's, it's just unbelievable. To look at that picture, you know, that was kind of the, you know, arc of the day from just walking up thinking I'm just going to try and get pictures of these people, you know, in the style of political theater to the tragedy of Heather High being murdered. Did you feel intimidated to be there? You know, I'm not very smart and 
and I'm not a brave person by any means. I, I have some friends who, who are really great human rights photographers. You know, some people call them war photographers, but you know, they're really human rights photographers and I could never do what they, they do. And that day, just like the Capitol, it was, it was more surreal than me feeling afraid, but that's not that there wasn't awful danger or whatever. It's just, I don't know. I just, that wasn't part of what I was feeling in the Capitol. What, uh, you know, if you want to know, I mean, what I was afraid of there was getting COVID. All the rioters and looters didn't have masks on. And you're literally squished into a hallway with them while they're just screaming and stuff. I'm guessing you managed to thankfully avoid contracting COVID. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, but yeah, I I took a test a couple days later and yeah. No problem. So very lucky. Last year, one of your photos was recognized at the World Press Photo Awards. And it's, it's that particular shot I'd like to explore a little bit more in detail. Uh, just to describe it, it, it shows five members of the white supremacist, white supremacist group Shield Wall celebrating Hitler's birthday on Lake Dardanelle, if I pronounce that right? Dardanelle? Well, yeah. In, in Arkansas. Can you describe how you managed to get that shot? I had gone to Arkansas several times to photograph that group. I was interested in that group because a lot of the people I've I've tried to photograph are people that I feel like eventually were going to commit violence or be a lone wolf. In the 90s, I photographed militias and you know, Timothy McVeigh came out of the, you know, one of those militias that I photographed. So, you know, it was kind of the same idea was I just, you know, wanted to show the level of hate and the level of danger that was out there. So this group, I had gone to their, their home and photographed a couple of the people. And this was, you know, like, for them, that's like George Washington's birthday, you know, so it was just a, a matter of going there and photographing them. I didn't want to normalize them. I didn't want to make them look like everybody else, you know, or just like a, a couple of good old boys having a barbecue kind of thing. You know, I really wanted to show their anger and the their closeness to being violent, they decided that they were going to go out on this lake. But this was also Easter weekend, like the next day was Easter. So families were out picnicking on the shores of this lake and they were driving around with a Nazi flag hanging from the back of their pontoon boat and just being dicks, you know? And so that's to me, why that shot is shocking is just how out in the open their racism and their perchance for violence was. And that's what I hope that picture shows. What was their demeanor towards you in particular? A lot of the feeling to, from those from the alt-right 
that members of the press are you know, the enemy of the people, quote unquote. Were they welcoming of your attention or were they skeptical? Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they're skeptical. They, they assume I'm going to, you know, do uh, bad pictures of them and, and that. It's not like I'm trying to be friends with anybody. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, insert myself in their lives. I just go take the pictures and get out. I had the opportunity to work with another photographer a bit. You know, we kind of watch each other's back and stuff. So, How do you feel when you look at that photo now? You know, that's, that's a really complicated question, and I don't know if I could really answer it. The thing I know about that photo is why I looked at that group was because the leader of that group has always found young men to commit violence. And so that's why I wanted to follow him. And I think three months after I took that picture, they uh, assaulted several people uh, by setting them up and that, and that, that, that was a big reason that I photographed that group or, or the proud boys or, uh, you know, many of these groups was to show people who they are. And if those people had shirts on and, and weren't doing a zig heil, you could say, Oh, here's just some people that look like my neighbors on a pontoon boat and that, and that's a big thing I wanted to show in, in the whole series that this is your neighbors. This is the, the person that, that suddenly says something and you just walk away and don't say, Hey, that's not right. And that, and that it's important that we all look at that, that we all understand in a society, we all have to confront the evils in it. 40 years is an incredible career in anyone's book. And it feels like your work has only really begun to build momentum. What's driving you to keep going? That's a, a very tough question. You know, I have a mortgage. <laughs> but yeah, I think I don't understand my own country. And so I just keep trying to photograph things I don't understand and to look at them to try and learn. I mean, photography is the greatest education in the world. I, I'm so lucky. I get to go places I never would go. I get to see things I would never see. It's like a passport, you know, and, and I'm not talking about white nationalists. I'm not talking about proud boys. I'm talking about just the world in general, where like, uh, I mean, you know, uh, an editor will call you up and go, hey, do you want to you want to go do this? And, and and you're like, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I want to learn about that or see that? And so, you know, that's kind of what drives me is, you know, I wasn't a very good student. I have a lot to learn, you know, learning stuff, but also try and be change how I how I photograph things. You know, I'm in a period right now. So the election's over. Hopefully we come out of COVID by this summer. And, you know, so I'm kind of like where I was 
after the election in 2016, where I'm trying to think, okay, how do I want to approach things now? How do I want to photograph things now? You know, maybe it'll be different. I hope I can come up with a different way to see things. My thanks to Mark Peterson, and you can see more of Mark's incredible work on his Instagram at MarkPetersonPix, that's Pix spelt P-I-X, and you can see Mark's WordPress photo winning entry on the WordPress Photography website. And you can hear more episodes of The Shot on our website at www.shotpodcast.com, follow us on Twitter at ThisIsTheShot, and see the photos discussed in every episode on our Instagram at the.shot.podcast.